0: The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it.
1: As a physician, we are still humans. Yeah. And humans still feel the emotion of other humans. It's so cool. It is what makes us humans so awesome as a species a lot of the time. Like, I love that I can feel what another person is going through, but at the same time, it becomes so emotionally heavy. And then you have to walk into that room with all three of those hats on your head. And all three
2: of your hats are fighting with each other. And all other three because of your hats are agree. fighting with each
1: other and still have that conversation with people.
0: Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcoat Podcast.
3: Weird news. Fresh views. Helpful clues and interviews.
1: By students. For students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com.
0: Welcome back to The Shortcode Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. Also happens to be a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. My name is Dave Etler, but more importantly with me today in the SP studio and otherwise. Look, I'm going to tell you about them shortcuts. Try to continue your feelings because it gets kind of weird when y'all gush over M1, Jeff Goddard. It's the cardigan. I get it.
1: It's a great cardigan. Thank you. I wanted to ask you where it's from, but I'll ask you later. Keep
0: (laughs) keep your joyful feelings from overwhelming you about the presence of MD-PhD student Miranda Skeen.
2: This makes me feel weird, but hi.
0: (laughs) Be cool. When I tell you that I'm here with MD-PhD student Riley B. Bush.
2: I'm the coolest, so.
0: And don't freak out when you hear. <laughs> when the sound of Dave's paper dropping. Don't, don't freak out when you hear that we've also got M3, M3? Ananya Munjal joining us from our satellite offices in Baltimore
4: hi call me three one i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> I, sorry i just
2: like that was a very suggestive intro probably i don't think you meant it but it's extremely just like contain your feelings because it gets weird when you guys like gush over them Look, it's like <laughs> so we're a beautiful
3: suggestive. cast i understand it's
0: fine
2: i mean like it's fine you do you fams but like i don't think
0: I just know that every time, you know, like I introduce people on the show, I get thousands and thousands of emails
1: Thousands Thousands that
0: say, good job, Dave, finding these wonderful, amazing human beings to be on the Shortcode podcast. Oh, and and that really, really happens.
1: Should we start some NIL stuff where now we can start? Monetizing our name, image, and likeness because of this show?
0: Oh, sure. Are
1: we under NIL rules here?
0: I don't care. Okay. I
1: was like, this
2: is the first time hearing of this. I love that
1: after the NIL thing came out for college athletes, people would come up to me and be like, oh, are you like so bummed? I was like, who do you think was going to be making like I wasn't going to be making money as a yeah. college soccer player. Like women yeah. in general not going to happen. Me, like a person yeah. mediocre at best. Like no. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but now I want my opportunity. There's- Dave also wants some NIL perks.
3: <laughs>
0: I want to endorse Nike. That would be fun. You know, one of the things to to start the discussion today. Let's just start the discussion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: What a transition. <laughs> Master <laughs> of I'm segues. actually
0: sitting over here thinking I
3: should take a picture of you and do this silhouette right here with the microphone as like a like a t shirt. Yeah.
1: yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We could sell it.
0: Yeah. I don't think anyone will buy it, but okay.
1: Maybe if few you, maybe
0: your family. We don't know.
4: It's like raffle tickets.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like you come <laughs> on
4: teenage son is going to buy a shirt with his dad's face on. Riley's like, your
2: family will
0: buy it. <laughs> okay, completely ironic. So your wife will
4: buy it. Your
1: teenage,
2: Maybe they'll buy it as like, My a teenagers
0: might buy, buy it ironically. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that,
4: that tracks.
2: We could they, do a magazine sale. They'll buy it ironically, but they'll ask you for the money to buy it. So
0: <laughs> Yes.
2: Exactly.
0: You'll buy it for them. Yeah,
2: you'll buy it for them. <laughs> this is my, my present to you.
0: Let's talk about ethics this week. I, I like a good ethics conversation, and here we are. One of the things that medicine struggles with is the difference between saving lives and ending suffering. Sometimes those goals are diametrically opposed, and the most obvious example of which might be that of a person suffering from a painful terminal illness. But, you know, let's talk about that for a little bit because I I think there's some I think there's some tension there that we could that we could sort of discuss. You know, what is the role of the team in end-of-life care? What are some things that we that that the team should think about in determining what to do next for somebody. Do you get taught these things in in school?
2: Yes. Like, for example, I think we spent like a whole lesson specifically about this on like double effect where like pain relieving medications may also like if you give someone morphine for the end of their life Uh. and they're like, you don't overdose intentionally, but like the morphine may actually help them die. That's not an intended effect. The intended effect was you give the morphine to relieve the pain, but it also like slows their breathing down and may hasten death's arrival. But that is a secondary effect that was not intended.
4: We're taught that at that, especially like, like regarding end of life care, in all care, but especially in end of life care, like it should be very like patient centered. It should be very, you know, targeted to like what a patient wants. But I do feel like in practice it ends up being a little bit more about like a physicians, you know, like I think there is a little bit of like a mentality of like, Oh, like we know best. And like, maybe there's some truth in that. Like if you've seen like 2000 patients, you have like a strong predictive value of like how this conversation is going to go, et cetera. There's a lot of like tr- trust, obviously put into a provider. So I do feel like there's instances where like a family will be like, doctor, like you tell us, like, we don't know, like, we don't know what this, what's going to happen here. And I think that's like a time where like, there's an opportunity to be like, You know like this we can give this medication or we can do more you know there's like an opportunity to spell out the options and like be a little bit more like nuanced with it and i feel like sometimes we not like maliciously but like we like forgo that conversation and instead we kind of say like oh you know like this is the best option and like you know like you're obligated to give all the side effects and all the bad things and we do that like i don't think we're unethical providers we is like a larger statement for all physicians for which i'm on on whose behalf i'm speaking of right now so i think we like you know do like we play by the book and we like say that this this and this will be like the side effects but i just like there's so much like room for gray in these conversations and i i do feel like sometimes we think that we know best and so we maybe overemphasize the benefits and downplay you know the side effects and yeah
1: Well, I think what you're emphasizing is the conversations that are happening kind of Mm -hmm. around this time. And so an alternate expect or I guess an alternative experience that I've actually had conversations with people about is those who are actually watching a loved one go through end of life care. And so, for example, I've had a conversation with a loved one of mine that I'll kind of anonymize. And this person was watching a loved one suffer toward the end of life. And ultimately, this person ended up kind of helping that loved one with the morphine pump and trying to get the medications that were necessary. But at the end of it all, post-funeral, post-everything, had a lot of regret as if this person, the loved one that I'm talking about, caused death because of this morphine. And I do think that if that conversation is not had with healthcare providers, then you leave those people who are left on this earth wondering Did I do something? Because just like we're talking about, does in this small example, does morphine cause hastened death? Do we know those answers? Is it something that then you can put guilt onto somebody? And without the proper conversation around that, Mm -hmm. you leave the people who are left here feeling this dissonance. Yeah.
3: I'm going to go ahead and humanize physicians on this one. and. And nursing staff so i've been in this situation more than once so far
0: in my career because in your career in the past you were
3: i was a, a tech i was right. a hospital tech. okay <clears throat> so I've i've you know been in the room when this is being administered for somebody who is at the end of life and we know where this is going and i think that conversations need to be had so that the physicians or the nurses or whoever is administering end-of-life care also doesn't have that regret Mm-hmm. right for so, sure. Uh, I think that requires talking to the patient it requires talking to the family and it certainly requires bringing in any other outside support that might be necessary I, I, this doesn't apply to everybody but a, a lot of people I would say the majority of people are reasonably comfortable with some form of a, a spiritual professional of some sort, whether it be ecclesiastical, like some kind of church leader or a community leader that they that they rely on. It could even be a, a family member depending on their belief system, but they want somebody that can help them deal with like the, the quote unquote spiritual aspect of the dying process, right? I think having those conversations with that whole team is the only way that we can avoid those, those concerns, right? Later down the road, like did, did I cause this? Is this really what they wanted? You know, and you just don't know unless you talk about it.
2: Yeah. Actually, a lot of this conversations reminding me of when I was on my family medicine rotation. They don't do this anymore, I think, but one of the things I did when we went to like the community center, was I spent a day with like a palliative care nurse, basically going around to all these homes and doing home visits. And it kind of struck me that there is a kind of difference in what you talk about with the family when the goal is, because there's goals like palliative care, a lot of times you've transitioned from the goal is to cure your disease or treat your disease to the goal is to lessen the symptoms. And you have different conversations with like symptoms versus treating a disease and it, it did strike me that the interactions I mean all the interactions I saw were broadly positive it's like okay so like how are they doing how are you feeling you know do we need to change doses up doses how are you in terms of like do you have enough to keep going for the next month until we get a new prescription like it was extremely fo- symptom focused and we're not worrying about like this thing that thing whatever like the rest of this is fine we're worrying about how is your quality of life and I think sort of a lot of this is tying back into goals of care, which is, you know, when you're and en- nearing the end of life, your goals of care switch. And as-, as long as everyone in the room, including like family members, the doctor, you know, nursing staff, all everyone's on the same page and including the patient. Like as long as everyone's on the same page, it usually works out fine. I think the problem you get is when like the patient wants, you know, symptom care and the family wants curative. And then that's where you have problems is when not everyone is on the same page.
0: Well, let's talk about, the, the sort of four ethical principles that you guys are—that oh, I ha- that, yeah, you guys I, are taught. You, I know that there's four of but I to do this. not. Jeff is probably okay. closer can, to this, but maybe Jeff can definitely
4: do it. Can I try? Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Here, here, here we go. Beneficent, mm-hmm. non-malefic—I might not be pronouncing this correctly. Non-maleficence, mm-hmm. autonomy, mm-hmm. and justice. Yes. Yes. Nice. <laughs> yeah. She passed Mass.
3: Or Cabs, whatever one. It I know. <laughs> one yeah, of the so,
0: two. So, I mean, you know, maybe we could have mentioned this earlier, but, uh, you know, autonomy is respect for a person's right to make decisions about their own care.
2: Mm-hmm. For, um, for our listeners, that's the reason why people have to be allowed to leave against medical advice. Like right. you cannot, unless someone is suffering from a psychological condition, you cannot keep them against their will.
0: Non-maleficence is, you know, doing no harm to not, not just to the person receiving care, but also to their loved ones and and, yeah. and, and the people around them. Beneficence is, you know, ensuring that the person is making an informed decision that they were receiving the best possible care. And then justice is making sure that, you know, ev- end of life care or, or any sort of care is available to everyone who needs it, and not denied to certain people based on socioeconomic or other factors.
1: Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, all four of those probably apply to every single scenario. For example, a patient asking to leave against medical advice, they are having autonomy in that situation, while at the same time, you are not able to provide the best care that you possibly want to give to that person. Yeah. So it's constantly a push and pull of, these four categories. Yeah. So it's like, not like, Hypothetically, always,
2: this person could be harming, like, you know, you're doing harm by letting them leave, correct. but also it is their right. So you, that, these are where you get gray areas is when you have two principles that sort of bang against each other. Correct. Sorry.
3: And, and this is a, a philosophical journey that every human being needs to go on at some point in their lives. There's just so much out of your control. Mm-hmm. I think it's particularly difficult for a, a profession like being a physician where you are used to I mean, life and death does hang in your hands depending on on the situation, depending on the case, right? Many times throughout your career and then you get to a situation where your goals and the patient's goals don't align and you know you have to default to their goals. But you are so used to being in control that it is kind of hard to do that. Hence, there being such a a visceral reaction to AMA, right? Mm -hmm. And and I've been there. I've I've had patients, I worked in an emergency department, I've had patients that have left and I feel like something's wrong. Like I, I should be able to control this situation, but I can't. And, and, um, or you feel
1: as though you did something like you yeah. didn't do enough to keep yeah. them. Like, I'm not trying to coerce you, but like <clears throat> you, you feel as though like, like I'm going to tell- have the conversation that keeps you here. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say the thing that is going to like yeah. convince you to take these steps for your health. yeah, but that's there, what there it is. There are words or actions that could have yeah. been
2: done that I didn't do. Right. Even yeah. if like there's no way in, in the world you could possibly figure out those words, you still feel guilty for not finding them in time. And that's what that is.
1: is yeah. We think these conversations, we have this semblance of control. I think people say this around death a lot in that we all think we have control in our lives. And when somebody that you know dies, whether that be a patient, whether that be a loved one, you suddenly have your world rocked because you suddenly realize you have no control. You have no, the semblance of control you thought you had is not actually there. And then you're left with the ramifications of that realization that I control nothing. And especially within these conversations around end of life. And that's what they are. They're conversations because we as doctors, especially in today's age, we're not being taught to make decisions for those patients, Yeah. regardless of what it may seem to those patients. I mean, some doctors are, but for my for my future, I would like to be a doctor who is having conversations that then lead to a patient making those decisions, a patient and their family making decisions based on the information. yeah, and end of life care, above all, not maybe above all, but end of life care or the decisions and conversations that need to be had around around treatment plans or things that can lead to life or death become so much harder. Because like I said, you get close to death and you realize you have no control at all.
3: And this is, I think, a good opportunity to invite any medical students or pre-medical students that are planning on going into this career field to consider where you stand on a lot of these issues, right? Mm -hmm. What, What does matter most, palliative care or curative medicine, right? And then once you have a firm foundation of where you are, understand when you're going to have to set it aside so that you can make room for the patient and I think that if you you start doing that introspective work now before you're in that situation it's a lot easier to manage it when it does happen right but it i mean it, it took me years to to really get a grasp on where i stood on a lot of these issues um mm-hmm. i think at it's at also hard thinking you know
0: I, I think what i i i love what you just said because i think it's a, a good idea to for people to start thinking about these things early i also you know sort of recognize that It's really hard to understand fully what it is you're asking yourself to think about until you've, you know, really been exposed to it. Yeah. And so as much as we try to teach these principles of ethics for you to to you and try to help you understand where where they come into play and and and, you know, it's it's almost not possible to really, it's like, it's almost not possible to really understand how it's going to work. Well, I had a pre-med
1: student who was preparing for interviews and they asked me, you know, I'm going to get these questions. Like I, like most medical schools at this point for those who are maybe thinking about applying for medical school or going through the interview process next year or currently are, a lot of medical schools ask you an ethical question. And the goal is to see, are you thinking through these through these principles maybe you're not saying autonomy you do not need to know those words but when given the the example of so and so is refusing a treatment what are the next steps they want to see that you're thinking through these processes and I had a student that was like well I would just tell them like go find the hospital ethics committee which fair but I was like don't say that like I understand you might think it but that's why I want to make this like it's okay to not have the answer in terms of ethical scenarios. And you shouldn't. Yeah.
2: Cause because, if you do, yeah, that's a problem. If you do, it's not a it's then it's not a it's not an ethical
1: problem. Yeah. And the point of ethics is that each of us probably sitting here could see both sides of every single ethical situation. Every single one has probably not just two sides, but like five sides. Like there are so many options. And so when you're thinking about ethics, the goal, unlike a lot of pre-med studying, is not to be right or wrong. The goal is to get your brain thinking about it. And once you've thought of one scenario, so for example, I'm forcing the patient to take this treatment. Now, like challenge yourself to think about the alternative. Mm -hmm. Who is better in the alternative? Is it better to not have the patient take the treatment? So you're probably going to run into these. Whether you want to or not, these ethical questions are going to arise both in this like you know, just kind of simulation that we play where we're talking about them, but also in real life. And so,
0: yeah, I feel like that's so hard for a lot of med students, even those who are already here and maybe those who have, you know, a lot of experience. It's so hard for med students to really get their, wrap their heads around the fact that there are things that you can't know the answer to, you know, like, like there, there are times when you just have to do the best you can and, and yeah base your decisions on your principles and then punt
2: and i think a a lot of ethical reasoning i was thinking about this because i was if you ever heard an episode of the good place they talk about the trolley problem and yes the trolley problem is thing outside of the good place but also this is where i was watching it and they were talking about like you know you know if okay so if you're on a trolley you change tracks to run over one person instead of five but then like what if you're a doctor and you need to kill one person to get their organs to save five people and everyone is like (laughs) Well, that's a totally different thing. And you're like, well, why? It's still killing one person to say five. And I think this kind of illustrates something to me, which is that ethical reasoning is not always logical. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. logically, it's still killing one person to say five. But like, you're like, oh, but it's different. And it's like. Well, why? And you kind of go. Maybe some every people time, who actually have studied ethics and have an answer for this. I don't. Every my time Miranda is comes up. on the
0: show, every time Miranda comes on the show, I end up thinking to myself, "I'm going to make that as my ringtone."
2: Yeah. Go ahead.
4: Oh well, I, I was just going to say, like, I think the reason it's it's like difficult. I know, like, so far we've talked about like, you know, giving treatment, not giving treatment. I think all of these things are like limited the scope of medicine. And so I feel like the reason it's tricky is because, you know, like these decisions, like these ethical conundrums, typically like the answer is not really like within like medication or like even like medicine. It's more about, you know, like we're talking about AMA. So like, and we're saying that like, Oh, we as providers, because we think, because we are like taught to treat or, and you know, like, because we're taught to treat essentially, we, it's like a failure to us. Like what Riley is saying is like, it's like a failure to us that we didn't like keep the patient here to treat them. Whereas like the answer to like this, or not really the answer because there is no answer to an ethical problem, but like, the holistic view of this is like, there's things to a patient that are more important than receiving treatment, which is mm-hmm. the thing that is difficult for us to understand. Um, and I was just thinking about, I have I thinking about harm reduction in general. I think harm reduction is like a space in medicine that does such a wonderful job of like considering the person as a whole. And I was thinking of right now I'm doing a research here and a large part of that is in cutaneous T cell lymphoma. And one part of cutaneous T cell lymphoma that's super, super difficult to like understand as as like a provider is that these patients are just like super super itchy and actually like and it seems like funny right like it's like a itch that can't be scratched and like you try all these treatments and it doesn't work but like these patients become like suicidal and actually like the biggest risk for being suicidal with ctcl is this like feeling of an itch that will just never go away we had a patient like last week in clinic and like one thing that is just like proven to like or like you know anecdotal to anecdotally proven to help patients is like marijuana like use of marijuana and so, but like a problem with that is that a treatment for CTCL is not the And so, you know, like the provider that I was working with, she had a patient and like this patient is like really, really needs to like be treated essentially. And it's a very difficult for her to stop using marijuana. And this conversation that the physician had was just like such a wonderful conversation. It was so practical and reasonable. And basically she was like, you know, here's the situation. Like this disease is going to like keep getting more severe. You will continue to get itchier and it will, it will progress. And, you know, methotrexate is something we can do to control your condition. And like it may or may not help with the itch. Obviously, like I understand that like this is the thing that is the most severe. This is like a symptom of your condition. And like this is what you feel of your condition. And so if you, if for that, or if for anything, you need to continue using marijuana, then like we'll find other ways that like may not be the best quote unquote best for like controlling the disease, such as methotrexate, but like, we'll figure it out. And like, you know, like you, but you tell me like, what is the priority right now? Like, Mm -hmm. can you stop using for three weeks just to see if this like will work for you? Or like, is it truly impossible? In which case we'll try other things. And I just feel like that's like, and it's. If you boil it down to that conversation, which is so patient-centered and so like reasonable, it like shouldn't be that difficult, you know, to like approach things in a more—I don't know—you can call it harm reduction, you can call it ethics—but I, I just felt like that was such a reasonable conversation. And I was like, we give all these lectures about like, you know, like the best way to do all this approach. And I was like, it's really that simple. It's just like yeah. this is the patient, this is the patient's needs, this is what I want to do, and like, how can we kind of meet somewhere? In the
0: world? Short coats, We love to hear from you. No matter what That's it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation. Whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show.
2: This is a really good example for this. Establishing what does the patient want out of their care is so important. Because these, all of these are areas of medicine where it's not... they are sick, they come to the hospital, we give them medication, and then they're healed. It's not like you come with a broken arm, you leave with a healed arm. Like, these are things where getting back to completely how you were before is just not an option on the table. So that not being on the table, what do you want from the treatment? And I think that's something that's sort of counter to the way we often think about medicine, which is like, we're going to help you get better and improve your life. It's like, well, we may help improve it, but what does improve mean for you? It's relative, and I... Th- a lot of this is just based on what are the patient's goals, which may not necessarily align with your goals. And remembering that, you know, this is their treatment and you should be helping them get what they want out of their treatment as opposed to making them do what you want.
0: So let me throw a wrinkle into this here. No. Wrinkle away. I'm going to wrinkle it up. <laughs> we're going to get we're all are going wrink- to need a steamer. We're going to get are going to get a
2: steamer for having
1: wrinkle in this conversation. Steamers never work. We're going to need an iron. <laughs>
0: How much an, of an effect should psychological pain have? Oh, pain is psychological. Yeah, but also yeah. like I, I mean, it, I mean, like I, to be
3: fair, I'm in the neuro unit right now. But like, you can't have pain without the brain. Like, literally, all pain is psychological.
0: I'm talking okay, more mo-
3: about. Okay, but emotional?
2: this is why everybody hates neurologists. So, <laughs> maybe
0: I so am not
1: putting myself in everyone. I respect neurologists because they do something I can't.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking more along the lines. I respect them. I don't have to like them. <laughs> I'm thinking more along the lines of of severe mental illness. Yeah. Where you know the person who is suffering doesn't want to keep living. Yeah. I don't know that physicians are always called upon in those situations. I think maybe those patients make their own decisions and do what they need to do. Yeah. But I mean, this is on occasion, I bet physicians are involved in those discussions and and and
2: Well, okay, you say that, but this is this to me ties a little bit into the fact that like okay, this is going to be kind of dark, but for all intents and purposes, suicide is illegal, which is why you can basically get—I I, don't—it's not called sectioned here. I think that's what they call it in the UK, but like you can be hospitalized involuntarily if you Under are suicidal. S- some
0: sort of law in your state. Yeah, or whatever, we tend yeah.
3: to call it being pink slipped, anecdotally. Sure. Yeah.
2: The TikTok calls it a grippy sock vacation, but I have not is, heard that one.
3: <laughs> that is. But like, <laughs> it, interesting. It, it,
2: but basically, like, if you're suicidal, you can be hospitalized, against you, which is essentially like you can be jailed for being suicidal. And I think there is is a decent conversation. And I'll be honest, I have very wibbly feelings about this entire thing. So just straight up, I don't have an answer for this. But the question is, should patients be allowed in either physical pain or psychological pain, either of these, should they be allowed? You know, it's the same thing as against AMA. Should they be allowed to like be suicidal without like being like, hospitalized involuntarily essentially like for, like if so, like for example for someone catches illness. a suicide.
4: what are you thinking specifically for mental illness
2: I I'm talking either like if someone is suicidal for any reason can't should they be allowed to be hospitalized like My, obviously they got taken to the hospital for a failed suicide attempt but like
1: I think the counter I would offer that I don't have the answer to but there is also a world of ethics around those who are mentally capable of making decisions versus not making decisions. There's a legal definition. There's a medical definition. There's a lot of definitions and I don't know them. But there is kind of the question I would pose, which is at what point in a mental illness that is maybe leading towards suicide, is that person mentally incapable of making those decisions? I'm not going to say all decisions. I would never say that. But like, is there a point at which that is no longer the chemistry of that brain is no longer capable of making the executive decisions that are needed yeah big like big life decisions yeah that would be my
3: counter i would say that of course there's i don't think that it it would be feasible in any way to objectively determine that yeah but what we our our general rule is because well objectively yeah yeah, yeah, there there is no objective way to determine Yeah, i was gonna say like we do determine has, it, but you're right that there's yeah. no real objectivity. Yeah, it is a yeah. sliding scale. But our general the, the general rule that we use, like the, the real hard and fast one, is suicidal or homicidal ideation. At that yeah. point, we do tend to isolate people or to, to put them in a safer environment. And I would argue that I'm comfortable with it based on the data that people recover from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If people are left to their own devices, if they terminate their life that that's a permanent solution. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But many, many people have recovered either from suicidal attempts or suicidal ideation and gone on to lead happy, productive lives that they are happy that they have. Right. And so knowing that, again, this is this comes back to trying to do a risk assessment as, as, as care providers. Right. But but knowing that that's the case, looking at that data, we can say we have every reason to believe that this patient if we can give them the help that they that they deserve at this point in their life they can recover from this even though they don't think they can and so i think i like that that, that
1: idea of recovering from this suicidal ideation or whatever this transient experience is i think that that wording i just want to highlight because i think that's really powerful to call it a recovery which we don't often think about we think yeah you know, people get to the other side and they don't talk about it or they do, but maybe not everyone is seeing it.
4: Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's like, a, at least for, from my perspective, ethically, I think there's a difference between like this, these things that we're saying, like, you know, like maybe like a suicidal ideation that's like related to a like mental illness versus like a, I, I guess we could call it suicidal ideation for like, you know, physician assisted suicide, which is yeah. like, a, I guess it is like a suicidal ideation. Yeah.
2: It's like chronic pain. That's so bad and we yeah, don't have a solution because, for it.
4: Right. Because I'm thinking like, 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 somebody who is mentally ill and suicidal to me that's like a pathology that's like a deviance from like a normal state of being so like that is something that like is possibly and hopefully treatable mm-hmm. and it's kind of like what like jeff was just saying that like it's you know something that like they could recover from and like lead wonderful lives i guess i'm yeah and i think that's just different from you know like from somebody who is like end-stage cancer and like will be in pain you know like a classic example of like a patient who would be eligible for physician-assisted suicide there's a really good book recommendation i just wanted to make it's amy blooms in love and it like talks about her husband who had end-stage alzheimer's and they went to and he like ended his life and i just i just feel like those examples are different because in the in the in that situation there is no like you know possible to possibility or a hope for recovery and so it's more of a treatment than like a you know than like a outcome of something that could have otherwise been treated in a different way.
1: That is an incredibly helpful distinction. This idea of recovery versus not recovery. And the problem with that is that decision oftentimes is in the physician's brain. Because like you had just mentioned, Jeff, like the person going through suicidal ideation does not see recovery as an option. Mm -hmm. That is not on their table for the same reason that a patient who is terminally ill with cancer does not see recovery as an option. The difference is there's an outside voice that is telling one of these groups that recovery is an option and there is not a option for recovery in the other group. Yeah. And so,
3: yeah, I think that, so this is going to come down to, this is why I want everybody who's, who's going to be in these fields to do these moments of introspection and to think about this kind of stuff is you have to talk about what I'm comfortable with right as a provider what what can I participate in that I'm going to be able to meaningfully contribute to your care for example me personally I wouldn't feel very comfortable being involved with euthanasia I think if that's where the patient wants to go that's you know that's between the patient and and his full care team but I don't know if that I, I would feel comfortable with her right and I have to take care of my own spiritual and and psychological health in order to be able to provide for the next patient. Right. So, but I know that because I've had to think about it. Right. Um, It would be terrible to be in that situation. Having never thought about where you want to go with this It would be incredibly difficult because if you make a decision without thinking about it, then you have to live with that. Right. That said, I think there, I, I appreciate the distinction that you made. I think it is an important one. I would still see suicidal ideation as a symptom of the overall terminal disease right so let's say it's in stage cancer let's say you've the doctor has said you know median people with this median survival rates is 12 months right and so you're sitting there thinking best case scenario it's 12 months and it's probably not going to be that good at 12 months and then you start having suicidal ideation yeah Uh, i agree yeah Yeah. i think that it is reasonable in that situation to uh, attempt to recover the patient from the suicidal ideation uh, but also being aware that like If the, if that's how the patient is, is choosing to, to meet this terminal illness, that's, that's between them and their family. I think that you can go into that with a lot more. I don't think that it's necessarily pathology at that point, right? It's, it's a conscious, rational decision of either way I'm going out. Now I get to decide how do I want this, this end to look like.
4: I think when the loss of like personhood is kind of like involved, kind of like what we're talking about, whether it be like a mental loss of, you know, like in Alzheimer's like in this book, or if it's like a loss of function completely, like you're going to deteriorate to the point where you may not be able to, you know, have the ending so to say that you want, then I think it's, Yeah, I don't know. I think that just that distinction is important as well. Sorry,
2: Miranda, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, this was the thing I was actually going to challenge you on a little bit ago was that like you kind of mentioned that and especially in sight cases, suicidal ideation is usually like part of the pathology. But and I'm not even going to say end stage cancer. I'm even going to say like, you know, basically intractable, for example, like nerve pain or something like something that there isn't necessarily a cure for. Sometimes there is. Like, you know, I've I know patients that have had, you know, horrible pain for a long time, but then eventually they find a treatment for it. If it's like if you've exhausted all other options but it's not terminal, then I would kind of and again, I am not saying what is ethical here. I'm more just saying that in that case, thinking about ending your life may not actually be pathologizable because it's actually a very understandable conclusion of like I can either keep living and keep living with horrible pain or I cannot be living and the pain will stop. So, it's sort of to me that doesn't feel very pathologized. It feels pretty, and it's not like, like, like
3: they're trying to make a rational decision. Based yeah, like, on, like they a still have assessment. the mental
2: capacity for decision making, and this yeah. is the decision that they've made. Yeah. And it's like th- those are the cases where I feel like, you know, the ethical question is should they be allowed to do that or not? And I do not have an answer
3: to that at yeah. all. And there's I would also say, yeah, the, it's not,
4: the it's just my answer, it's not yeah. the answer, but I would yeah. say like it seems very sound. Yeah.
3: yeah. There's also the, the, the unknown diseases, right? Like, for example, i uh, blanked on his name. He's very important. Everybody loves him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Steven, <laughs> Dr. Stephen Hawking. Oh, yeah, a that, I thought you were going to say that, that, say that normally but. has a, a rather aggressive progression, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not that he didn't obviously progress to a point where it was severely impacted his life, and yet he went on to lead a very fulfilling life and, and did a lot of important work that I think physics is a, a better field for his efforts, right? And comedy, let's be honest. He's a funny guy. <laughs> but that, that said... And when you're sitting with a patient, when you're, you're having that conversation, can you imagine having that conversation with him when he first gets his diagnosis, not knowing what the what the possibilities would be one way or the other? Right. Yeah. That would be a very difficult conversation when you start talking about things like, well, maybe I want to go out on my own terms instead of slowly being trapped in my own body. Right. Yeah. I don't think that it would be the physician's place to make that call one way or the other. But yeah. to, to just have a risk assessment with them and then bring in other members of the care team, right? Yeah. It could be a social worker. It could be the family. It could be if, yeah. they, if they wanted a spiritual leader, whatever it is, to have a conversation with a full team and help them make a decision that they genuinely feel like this is the best thing for me.
0: I think that's one of the big reasons that these teams exist in these situations is to have conversations where as many perspectives as possible yeah. are taken into account and and yeah, And a, and as a, many a opportunities better decision can be made well. rather than just, oh, it's all up to me to yeah. to yeah. provide this patient yeah. with information. And-, and,
3: and I think one of the dangers that we run into as, as healthcare providers is sometimes we'll do that risk assessment for ourselves beforehand, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the room and will essentially project our risk assessment onto the patient which i think i'm certainly not trying to moralize the issue but for yeah. example that was one of our issues with with during the covid pandemic was trying to get people vaccinated right? right a lot of people understandably were very emotionally worn out and they were trying to do these risk assessments with patients and they projected their risk assessment onto the patient and a lot of the times push them further away from, for example, getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That wasn't their intent. Right. But yeah. they, they weren't able to meet the patient where they were and have a risk assessment with the patient and then bring them into a decision that, w- that was better for the patient or and or the patient's family or community or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. It's a hard thing to do, especially in a career where we're emotionally exhausted a lot of the time it It bears repeating that it's 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 helpful to try to do these things on and your introspective time where you can have these conversations with yourself so you know going in these are the things that I'm going to have to do.
1: You also don't get into medicine most of the time unless you have a pretty healthy dose of empathy, yeah. And so a lot of times what happens in these, at least in my brain, I see this ethical situation, and I wear my doctor hat on one side of my brain, and then I wear my patient hat on one side of my brain, and then on the back side of the brain, I'm thinking (laughs) patient's family member, and I've gone through all of these hats. For a person, for example, who is maybe terminally ill, and I as the doctor maybe know that there is some experimental treatment, like maybe we could try it, you know, X, Y, Z. Maybe that's kind of the treatment options, but I know the risks and assessment of that. From the patient's point of view, I'm tired. I'm really tired, and I don't mm-hmm. know if I can do it anymore. And from the family member's point of view, I want every moment that I possibly can with this person. Yeah. And what becomes the problem is that as a physician, we are still humans. Yeah. And humans still feel the emotion of other humans. It's so cool. It is what makes us humans so awesome as a species a lot of the time. like I love that I can feel what another person is going through. It yeah. is an incredibly... In, an incredibly incredible, I was gonna say that, incredibly. an incredibly incredible yeah. experience incredibly incredible. but at the same time it becomes so emotionally heavy and then you have to walk into that room with all three of those hats on your
2: head. And all three of your hats are fighting with each other. And all other three of your hats are fighting agree. with each
1: other and still have that conversation with people. I mean have I'm at the age now where I've seen grandparents die and I've seen young people die tragically of cancer and And I've watched myself put on this physician hat and I watched myself put on this person hat and I just can't help but like want to cry because they're at such dissonance most of the time. Yeah. So I just want to say, like, it's okay to feel heavy when thinking about these ethical and emotional decisions, because that's what they are. They're still Wrought with emotions. And the key is that you should feel the emotion, but not let it become so overwhelming to you as a healthcare provider and not let it override your ability to provide care. And that is a really, really tricky skill to get. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm there yet because yeah. a lot of times I'll watch or see patients going through things and I want to cry for the feeling of being that patient or for the feeling of being that family member. Yeah. And that's not necessarily
2: my role. And also, to to add on to this beautiful speech, by the way, uh, <laughs> like legitimately. And also not letting that need to provide care. like, let that override your empathy and get jaded. because I have seen, like residents that I just feel like, wow, that was a little bit harsh or you're not I felt like there wasn't a lot of empathy in the room. And honestly, I think it is just because, like, they have been trod on a lot, and it's just kind of started to get beat out of them. And I've seen more most of the residents and doctors I've seen have a ton of empathy for their patients. But I have also seen cases where it just seems to get beaten out of them. And you're right, there is a, a line you have to walk of like keeping the hats on and letting them both talk.
0: And we should say that, you know, some days are better than others for yeah. empathy. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. em- empathy is is a quality we have, but it's not always a quality that we... It is a fine are inequality. able to evince in yeah. a given yeah. moment.
1: Well, because the hat I didn't mention is also all the things that you're currently going through in every yeah. part of your life outside of medicine. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. not just... That's
2: so all, all. I gotta take my cat to the vet and yeah. my
1: kid is sick. Or and I my just found out my kid is sick and yeah. terminally sick and I have that emotion as well. Or I just went through some terrible review and I just got yelled at for an hour. Like, we're humans. Yeah. And these yeah. decisions are so hard. And that is what I want to emphasize so much is... To any person that's like, I don't want to think about ethical decisions because they're hard. They're meant to be hard. They're meant to be emotional. They're meant to be logical. And it's all so confusing because they're both
3: all at the same time. Well, let's wrinkle this up even more. Oh, go ahead. Last thought, and then you can just wrinkle away. I'm (laughs)
0: I'm actively wrinkling as we that. Uh,
3: I propose that these are some of the most valuable experiences for us as human beings like it is they it agree. is genuinely fulfilling it, it is difficult of course it is difficult and is, is a hard thing but it's genuinely fulfilling to be able to be in the room and to care for somebody during these situations mm-hmm. and to be there for the family after these situations don't go the way that any of us had hoped for right or uh, some of us but not all of us had hoped for whatever it is and we're all going to be at different points in that so I don't, I don't want anybody going into this thinking like wow that sounds way too hard I can't do this right yeah I have a. So I, I live at the Firehouse. row house. So there's quite a few of us. And, and some of the M2s that are just now starting their rotations, one of them this week, it was the first time that they'd have to t- tell a family member that they that the patient had passed away and that would, they, they cried all day. Right. It was mm-hmm. very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first time, right? Yeah. And it's still sitting with them and they need to find a way to to cope with it and then make it a, a healthy experience for them as well. Whereas people like me, so not to get too personal, but my, my father passed away when I was a teenager. And so like I have a very different relationship with death. I'm a lot more comfortable with it as a co-worker, I guess, to be too coy with it. But it's an experience that I'm a lot more comfortable with. And and I see that like we don't all have to be at the same point. And it's okay that for you today, it's hard. That's there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that makes you more human that you're that you're taking the time to process these emotions and figuring out what this means for you and and what it's going to mean for your ability to to care for others.
0: There's another thing that we need to talk about, I think, with this, which is how people's religion Mm -hmm. is, you know, informs these decisions. So, you know, many religions view life as a gift from God and thus sort of prohibit the taking of a life or one's own life, you know. They, they, you know, they prohibit the taking of life because it's viewed as an act of self-centeredness and lack of respect for God. Maybe some religions view life as an opportunity to serve God and thus prohibit suicide in order to protect that opportunity. I mean, these are all like things that are sort of. Maybe even forefront in people's minds when they when they think about these decisions. Yeah. And I think they should be.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you are religious, like dying is a big key of a lot of these religion, well, not big religions. Well, most
1: religions were made to give humans some satisfaction of what happens after.
2: Yeah, yeah. Human. Like it, it's a big part of their. I was about to say like dying is a, a big part of being human. Like it's kind of inevitable. But yeah, it, it's it's weird if it's not taken into account, yeah. honestly.
3: So hopefully our, our listeners, you can cut this out later if you don't like it. Hopefully <laughs> our listeners like uh, vulnerability. So I've actually... i'm I'm an incredibly religious individual Mm -hmm. i've also dealt with suicidal ideation and i remember a conversation that i've had with myself where it's like gosh i sure hope that you know deity understands this what's going on with me right now right because this is happening like it it is my actual experience i'm hoping that that can be understandable right yeah Yeah. and not everybody's had that experience you know trying to juxtapose those two things but i think at this point it's like my personal view view is that like life is a sacred experience Mm -hmm. that said how we go out is also a sacred experience like we get to we we get to have this conversation with each other we get to discuss the the value of life whether it be through euthanasia or maybe you're having a friend that's struggling with suicide i don't think any of those things make somebody an immoral person as much as it means that this is a person that's struggling with something right and I think that the fact that it's hard makes it even more sacred. And I don't think that necessarily needs to be a religious thing. I think that's just part of humanity, right? The the hardest things are the things that bring us the that make life the most valuable. Yeah. So it's always going to be a discussion that's difficult for a community be it religious or not. And certainly a caregiver has to figure out what what that means for them. But they have to figure out what it means for the patient more
4: yeah i, I think I just, that thank, oh, sorry. thank you so much for sharing that jeff and it's been, like very hard to be vulnerable and i really appreciate that and i'm glad you're here
3: yeah
2: completely agree and i think what you said there at the end is the thing that i think is just the big takeaway is that You know, regardless of whether a patient is religious or not, having the understanding of what their goals are, what their beliefs are, and what what they value, like, what is most important to them as they're leaving this earth is, like, has to be the forefront of you as a caregiver's mind as well. Like, absolutely.
0: Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. Don't forget to tag us in your post.
2: Thank you.
3: And since we're talking about the hardest things imaginable in healthcare right now. You know, no big, we'll just, I'll throw in another one. Right. So when we're dealing with reproductive care, it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's more or less the same conversation. You have to be able as a, as a care provider to be able to say, this is where I stand on these things. And if it's not where my patient is, that can be okay. I, because I have to take care of my own spiritual and and emotional health as well. I, I, But if I know that about me, I need to find them the care for somebody that can help them with this situation. Exactly.
2: Like there are actual medical guidelines for those situations, which is that like you're like, obviously you can't deny that patient care, but you are allowed to say this is not something that I'm comfortable with. Allow me. And it's it's kind of a sucky situation, but it is the best one because you have a right as a healthcare provider to follow your own conscience. And if your own conscience is saying I can't treat this patient, then like you need you need to make sure that they're taken care of. You're not allowed to ditch them. But. If that is something that you are allowed to do as a healthcare provider. I want to add another wrinkle to this, which is Ooh. that
1: more wrinkles, <laughs> more no iron. sight. So, I've recently had different conversations around people, loved ones that have had loved ones pass tragically, and the reckoning of their religion throughout that process. And one thing we might not think of as healthcare providers is oftentimes patients who are maybe going through terminal illness or have some sort of tragedy happen, they may also have this reckoning of how could my God or whatever being that they believe in, how could that thing do this to me? How could I be in this situation? I've been a good person my whole life. How did this happen to me? Whatever karma, whatever anything. And those are probably going to be comments that you're going to get from patients. And whether you are a religious person or not, you are responsible, in my personal opinion, you are responsible for putting a religious hat on and giving that person some comfort in that moment. Yeah, Because I think we all know enough to say, you did not do this. This is not you have enough knowledge and you should give them enough knowledge to feel peace with their religion. You, your job is not to add a wedge to that religion and say, I don't know how your God did this. Like no one would say that, but I'm (laughs) saying actually (laughs) adding some peace. We are not. My personal opinion is that we as medical providers are not without religion, whether you believe it or not, we have a responsibility to respect that person's religious beliefs, whether that is a religious belief or that is atheism of whatever kind they believe we have the responsibility to meet them where they are for the same way that we have a responsibility to honor our own religious beliefs yeah so when a person comes in and they have this kind of reckoning or questioning of their faith personally I think it's our responsibility to make sure that they find some solace in yeah. conversation with you even if you are not their religious leader
3: yeah I, I think that it's important to yes yes Yes, that. Yes,
1: and. <laughs> yes, 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 and. and. Yes. This is there are no buts
3: in this room. <laughs> there are just ands. I I agree, and I think that it is important to recognize our limitations in that for aspect. Sure. Right. Like, yeah. for example, I would never just say like, oh, I can read this EKG. I'm going to go ahead and get cardiology in the room because I'm not great at it. <laughs>
2: That's a whole mess of squiggles that I'm sure means something. <laughs>
3: yeah, but I can look at it, and I can give some information and then get an expert, right? I think it's the same situation where, and again, if, if it's because I'm not religious or frankly, I just, I'm not a clergyman of any kind. Yeah. I'm just not like, I'm not trained in this. I think that it is extremely helpful that more and more these days you'll see chaplains in mm-hmm. hospitals, right? Mm-hmm. And they try to be interfaith chaplains that are like, it's not going to be like you have to be Christian or uh, Jewish or or whatever faith Tradition you're from they can be general enough that they can give you that spiritual guidance and help you find a way to heal from your spiritual trauma while you're dealing with these end of life decisions right for sure definitely definitely try to make sure that you have a good relationship with these people because they're going to be taking care of your patients more than you can in certain aspects of the care.
2: And on that note, this is not, like, ethical, but I have a practical thing where I think it is... It because, it's unethical,
0: but practical. I, I think, Do you want to think about how you phrase that? Or yeah, what? I know, but bad, bad <laughs>
2: phrasing. This isn't this is related to the ethics of the discussion. But I think I like that philosophy, and I think it's also worth knowing that there are some faiths that may ask to go above and beyond. Like, for example, like, I'm Catholic. Catholics, if we know we're, like, terminally ill or dying from an accident, we want to have a Catholic priest come and do an anointing of the sick. So if the, like, interfaith chaplain is... Is not a Catholic priest, they may request, like, hey, can like you get a priest? And honestly, just having, like, kind of an understanding, or like, okay, here's the contact information for, like, the closest Catholic church, the closest, like, non denominational, the closest synagogue, the closest, like, just basically, like, having someone on speed dial to be, like, hey, help. I have a patient who's this faith and they need some guidance. How do I do this? And I
0: imagine if you don't have that information to hand, you yeah, know, if, if you have a chaplain, in the hospital. I would, that would imagine that that's that good. part help. of their part role of their is role. helping you get in touch with those people because you're right. Yeah. I mean,
3: I, I, I'm not Jewish, but if a patient is Jewish and they want the, the rabbi to come and discuss the specific theological ramifications of anything with them, I want them to be able to have that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the whole point is that when somebody mentions religion, the goal is not to just ignore it and talk more about treatment. Yeah. You yeah. must acknowledge it. And maybe, because I will, never, I will never say, you probably won't have the right words to say to that person. Odds are, there's probably no one that has just the right words. There's enough people that have semi the right words. And then there's the person's brain's ability to culminate those and make a yeah. decision.
2: But Yeah, especially when you're already dealing yes. with like a lot of complicated things. So say something or if you
1: don't know what to say, say, I'm going to help you find the resource that you need. And that's doing yeah. something. Just don't do and nothing. That's a really
3: key. Someone would be like, oh, yeah. that's not really my wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, like, oh, I'm like, I don't do I religion here. <laughs> let's talk about treatment. I don't do God. So.
0: I don't do God. So, Only on Sundays. Really, <laughs> I, but that's a key part of the physician experience, I think, anyway, is, is understanding when you don't have the answers and how to yeah. help your patient find, you know, something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think
3: that that's going to be so, like, that, that's such a non-issue. Everybody knows that. That we're just trying to make sure, that, make sure we expand that into things that aren't, like a specific other physician specialty, right? Like there are things beyond the specialties of medicine where people genuinely could use help and we should know where those resources are. Because
1: spiritual wellness is one of the pillars of wellness. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether you believe in a deity or not, spiritual wellness matters to a lot of people. And I'd argue should probably be included in everyone's wellness Experience yeah. and spiritual is a broad term, so yeah. if you want to look it up, look it up. I'm okay. not talking. I'm yeah. not evangelizing.
2: I was say, you do not have to be religious to be spiritual. You don't like, have to be religious just to be, be spiritual. like in touch with your own humanity.
3: The, 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 the definition ball. is is feeling feeling part of something larger than oneself, right? Which could yes. just be humanity, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, Okay, it up. Can
4: I can I enter a wrinkle? Yes. Please. <laughs> I think I think we're we're very fortunate to live in a country that is like very respectful towards other people's religious beliefs. And I think we're doing a great job like discussing that. And I think most people listening are very comfortable with the idea of everything that we're saying. Unfortunately, just like, you know, just being where we are, both like in terms of like the time and the place. I think it is sometimes like a little bit less um it's a, there's like a little bit more conflict when we talk about cultural beliefs and so mm-hmm. like I guess like I would consider myself not super religious very spiritual and like very i think my identity is like very strongly rooted in my culture I'm Indian for context and so I think you know like everybody feels like very like comfortable bringing in the nearest rabbi if possible bringing in like a non-denominational person if possible being very culturally sensitive I know like one of our interview questions is about like this is common knowledge I'm not spilling anything uh, <laughs> about like you know you have a Jehovah's Witness patient like and they don't want to have a blood transfusion I think everybody feels like very comfortable with that I think we feel less comfortable with some of the cultural nuances such as like you know like uh, the classic example would be like you know a person of some you know culture there's no specifics here they're like family in their in their culture and they could even just be like american it doesn't have anything really to do with like their nationality or their ethnic origin but like in this family like we don't tell like the dying that they're dying like we don't tell elderly people that they're passing away or or like we're in a family where like a woman comes in and her husband makes all the decisions for the family and then i've seen patients like this like where like the patient is a female and, you know, the her partner is the one that's like making all the, all the decisions. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just like, I know that we just like feel less comfortable with those things. And I just like wonder like, you know, if there's any discussion about where that goes. I know there's like the proper answers, but I just feel like, especially speaking from like an American physician perspective or a future American physician, I, I do know that like the way that we practice medicine here is like, obviously like rooted in Western culture. And so yeah. we have certain beliefs that are also influenced by like, government structure and our ideas of like autonomy and like the fact that we're very privileged to live in like a democracy and so you know like it or not those things influence how we think about patient care and how we think about the rights of a person and the word autonomy that we use like in our curriculum is just so rooted in like that identity so yeah
2: it's a great
0: point because i mean depending on where you go in the country after you graduate or where you end up practicing for the rest of your life you go to you know, a lot of places in California, you're going to you're going to end up working with people who, you know, come from Asia and many parts of Asia and who have many different real, um, yeah. belief systems,
4: yeah.
2: cultural
0: belief systems around these topics.
2: Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times, especially the reason that a lot of that is uncomfortable is because like, I think the example you brought up about like, you know, the man makes the decisions, of the family is that like when I'm in the room with the patient, especially if I've never met them before. If I see, like, a guy is making, like, talking for the woman in the room, I start he- seeing red flags as, like, is this woman being abused or is she being, like, being taken advantage of? And, like, I, you know, you can say, you know, culturally, this is a thing, and I will believe you, but I'm not, I am probably won't, like, take it at face value, and I would probably, like, need some additional help, which you... Don't always get so. I sometimes wonder if some of that is, and some of it is just you know, in the case of we don't tell the dying that they're dying, that's not necessarily an abuse case or a potential abuse case. It isn't an abuse case anyway. I'm phrasing this badly. Welcome to my welcome know. to my brain. Ed, editor help, but like I think there. <laughs> I'm is, the editor,
0: by the way. So yeah, there is
2: there is definitely something to be. Set around the fact that like those ethical values that we are taught are not everybody else's ethical values like sometimes they don't think that autonomy is the core value sometimes it's like the head of the household their opinion matters more than my autonomy and that is something that we and again this is another no right answer situation but there should be a way where we can walk the median line of, I am going to treat my patient. I am going to talk to my patient, but I'm going to try and respect those values as much as I can within like my ethical boundaries.
3: And to maybe make people a little bit more comfortable with this idea, because I admit I'm, I'm a very much an individualist, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So I have a hard time on the face of it, dealing with these types of, of family structures, but remembering like we all seed autonomy in different areas of our life. For, throughout our lives on different and different issues, right? I'm not going to be policing other people's driving. That, that's why we have traffic cops, right? Like it's just <laughs> I completely cede my responsibility to make sure that the streets are safe in that area, right? <laughs> so patients ceding responsibility to understand their disease prognosis or or something like that to a family member because that's culturally how they just that's how they do it. I don't think that there's anything it's one of those situations where you can't say this is, there is a right or wrong answer, right? Yeah. This is just what they feel comfortable with. And frankly, if it's, let's say it is the the husband and the wife situation. If they come from a culture where that's just what has always been done, the wife has seated that on purpose. Mm hmm. A lot of the time. I mean, there might be issues. There's yeah. certainly concerns where in our culture where we'd be concerned about abuse or something. Right. But it's entirely possible that on purpose, she seeded that responsibility because she wants to focus on other things. Yeah. And that is just not her wheelhouse and she doesn't want it to be. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, there are tons of areas in my life where I just, I want to seed responsibility and not, I don't want that to be my issue. Right. So I think that it's, that makes it a little bit more palatable for me. That's helped me get through this and trying to understand it. And like, okay, this is just their family dynamics and yeah. everybody is genuinely happy.
2: And at least where I'm coming from, like, yeah. I would be pretty comfortable if like, for example, I was like, I asked, you know, I basically got the husband out of the room and just said, like, hey, is it OK if he like does he's kind of and then if she says, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's then like, fine. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We will do this the way that you do. But like, I would want to have some assurance, like as soon as I have oh, yeah. the assurance that like my patient is OK with this dynamic, I'm fine with it because yeah. they like
4: they're my priority. Yeah. Sorry. I also think that, like, you know, the autonomy that we're discussing is like the autonomy, like, kind of like Jeff was saying, of like the medical information or like the disease prognosis. But I feel like, you know, like you're saying, like, seeding that is kind of seeking, like, also like a different kind of autonomy, which is like the autonomy of like not having to know is its own, like, comfort. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a, I, I like went through like a, like, see, I was a serious medical procedure like a few years ago. And like, there's like a huge burden to like knowing everything. Like, there's a huge burden to like learning what we learn and like knowing what's going to happen. And like, the, you know, like, I think it's from, uh, I think it's, like, also helpful when you consider that this is, like, from a place of care that, like, you know, typically the children of this person who's dying are, like, will bear that burden, like, for them so that they can, like, leave peacefully. And there's an autonomy in that as well. And, like, kind of what you, like, so wonderfully pointed out that this woman has, like, now does not have to bear this burden. Like, she knows her husband will do it for her. And, like, she has her own things that she will, you know, do in this, you know, relationship yeah. that we're.
3: And, frankly, that. a lot of our patients, like, this is something that we'll have to deal with as physicians where they are just. Yeah. You know cede all responsibility to us and like whatever you want, doc. I, I don't want to hear all the out I don't, don't explain it to me. Just do what you need to do. And you're like, like I don't know I want <laughs> that either. I don't, I don't really want to. Yeah, but <laughs> but like, that's, just, that, that's gonna be their preference, right? And that, yeah. that's yeah
1: and it's okay. Yeah. It's just you're probably gonna have to, you're probably in the process of being a healthcare provider, gonna learn a lot about a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions. And instead of seeing it as a barrier to providing care I think you can flip that mindset and see it as kind of a really cool experience to learn more about this person and how to provide care to a larger group of people. Because it is probably going to feel like a challenge at times to have to take into account different cultural beliefs or different cultural wants or different religious beliefs, religious wants, so on and so forth. But it also is a really cool opportunity to... Learn a lot about a culture that you probably didn't know about before. And so as hard as we've made all of this out to be because we are cerebral humans, (laughs) it is also it's a joy of what we do. I think in the process of being in medical school, I have become a more compassionate, loving person for Mm -hmm. a lot of different groups of people that I just hadn't had the opportunity to interact with before this. And I think that's something really special about medicine that we get to have this opportunity to to talk about all this stuff
0: yeah. well you get the last word okay hey, i yeah. want to <laughs> i want to thank before i before i get into the credits i want to thank matt engelkin who produced this show lost his uh grandfather recently and got him started thinking about this issue so our condolences to matt and his family thank you very much matt for sharing so much, your uh, your thoughts with us ananya miranda riley jeff thanks for being on the show with me today
1: Thanks, Dave. Thank
0: you, Dave. And what kind of... So that's not going to make sense because we didn't get to part two of the show. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what kind yeah, of...
2: I, I hit, it hit like 12.50 and I'm like, we're not getting to the no, witcher no, others, are we?
0: What kind of... What, unethical. From, what kind of unethical <laughs> piece of crap would I be? Uh, there we go. If, there
4: it is.
2: If
0: I didn't thank you, short coats for making us part of your week. If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show where refined podcasts are available like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. And this show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Fox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying, Don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Bye.